We can turn your Bibles over to Jude, next to last book in the New Testament. We started this last week, and just do a little review, and then we'll get into our message for tonight. Last week, we just kind of laid the foundation for the beginning of our book, and we looked at the first two verses. We talked a little bit about the background and the setting, and um, I don't know if you had a chance to read the second chapter of Second Peter, but that's very similar to the book of Jude, and um, which one preceded which is kind of uncertain, but this was probably written around 68 to 70 AD. The author is Jude, or Judas as the name was known, and he was a servant of Jesus Christ, it says, and the brother of James, which means that he was probably the half-brother of Jesus, James being the half-brother of, of Jesus as well. So he was uh, uh, related uh, to the Lord, but he didn't use that as a um, calling card to get his way with people. You know, hey, I'm Jesus's brother, so uh, as a matter of fact, he probably never even became a follower of Christ until after Jesus died and was resurrected. That's The Bible seems to indicate that most of his siblings didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They turned on him, and it wasn't until after he was risen from the dead um, that they came to faith in Christ, and Jude eventually became a, a leader in the early church, which is kind of encouraging, hence the title Servant of Jesus Christ. And his audience, we looked at that last week in verse 1, and we said that they were called, that had the idea of being personally chosen or selected, and we went through that in depth. And then the second word he uses there is beloved, and we mentioned about it being a, a perfect passive participle which means it indicates that it was done in the, the past in a time eternity uh, and Ephesians also indicates that that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world uh, so we were called beloved and also kept and it was kept by the Lord Jesus Christ and it has the idea to pay attention to or to observe, to keep under guard, to maintain. And it's good to know that our salvation isn't left up to us, right? Uh, we're kept by the Lord. And so then we looked at verse 2, and we just kind of called that a prayer of acknowledgement. He kind of prayed for them. He said, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And that multiplied means like super abundantly multiplied, like more than what you would ever, ever need. And um, notice, it's interesting, always the order of that. A lot of times it's grace and mercy and peace and love. You know, you can't understand the love of God um, without really understanding the peace that he offers and the mercy and it comes through his grace. And so there's always that order there of that. But it's, it's an interesting letter when you read through it because there's certain parts of it uh, that he actually quotes from that aren't even scripture. Uh, there's some that are written apparently from the Assumption of Moses and First Enoch, which are of the apocryphal writings. But these were books that were probably very familiar to his readers, and he probably used them just to make a point. But he also uses, and we looked at this last week a little bit, a lot of Old Testament references. It's amazing how many Old Testament references he uses because he knows that his readers would understand, maybe they were from a, a Jewish background, a lot of uh, the context for the reference. And so in one verse, he uses the way of Cain, the era of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. They're all basically from the Old Testament. But he knew his readers would be familiar with that, and they'd immediately pick up on what he was talking about, unlike many of us today. We're like, Korah, who's that? Balaam, what's that? You know. So we'll kind of go through that when we go through that verse. But when you study the book of Jude, you learn a lot about the Old Testament, which is kind of neat. And so he wrote this, not to any one person, not even to any one church. It's kind of a general epistle, and it was possibly written to a group of churches. And so he wanted people to know, and he, we're going to look at his purpose for writing tonight, and he says there in verse 3, um, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So he starts out saying, I was going to write to you about one thing, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, there's a lot in that verse, and that's what we're going to pick apart today. But he wanted, his desire was to write to them a very encouraging letter, uh, 
a letter celebrating their salvation, the common faith, what it meant to be saved. Uh, but a problem apparently developed in this group of people that he was writing to, these churches. There was people within the churches, and he needed to desperately uh, address that. And so he had to change right in the middle of <laughs> the writing here and say, I, I wanted to do this, but I'm going to go in a different direction. And um, apparently some people have crept into the church, it tells us, into the fellowship and have put themselves in positions of, let's just call it positions of influence. And what they were doing is rather than building the church up, as we're called to do, they were actually tearing the church apart. Not just by teaching, you know, bad doctrine. That's one way to tear, to tear a church apart. But they're also promoting, through their bad doctrine, uh, what seemed to indicate an immoral lifestyle. And Jude wrote in response to this, and he wrote the letter knowing that the whole group of people, all these churches or whoever he wrote this to, the, the, the group of individuals, the, whoever he wanted to address, but it was a very general epistle, he wanted to have the sincere believers and the, the leaders who were struggling with the same issue that Jude saw in these churches, uh, he wanted to address them, but he also wanted to address these deceivers that kind of crept in snuck into the church and took over. They were starting to take over. And he knew that everybody would hear what he was saying. Uh, what's interesting in that is he, he, he wrote hoping that those who were sincere in their faith, especially those amongst the leadership, would become aware of the same problem that he became aware of in their own church. Obviously, they weren't aware of it, or they would have been handling it. Uh, and... It, they were just kind of, I don't know if they, you can't even say they were ignoring it. Maybe they didn't know about it. I don't know. But once they became aware of what was going on, he wanted them to take appropriate action. So he was kind of a calling them, the sincere believers and those in leadership, to some form of action. And I also believe that he had hoped that the, the characters that crept into the church, these people who were deceivers, the people who were sp spreading this bad doctrine and this immoral lifestyle, uh, would... I think his, his goal was that they would hear his words and they would recognize themselves in his address, as so often does when we listen to sermons, right? We listen to a sermon and we're like, wow, is that guy talking to me? Because it seems like it just, you know, goes right to our heart. Well, he was hoping that would happen here and that they would recognize themselves in his words and would have a change of heart and really repent, change of attitude, change of direction. But he doesn't, you read through this letter, he doesn't beat around the bush. It's not a long letter. It's, it's, it's 25 verses. It's kind of short. But it's, it's, very, it's very pointed. And he doesn't pull any punches. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't kowtow. He doesn't, you know, well, I, I, I understand why you're this. No, he, he just lays it out there. He makes it very clear that this is a matter of eternal life and death for these people. So it's very serious what's going on in this church. And the problem was not that these individuals were emphasizing minor doctrinal changes or differences that they had with the apostles or anything like that. They weren't talking about the mode of baptism or what kind of songs they played in worship. You know, those are kind of, you know, nominal things to disagree on. But they were really attempting to sabotage the very foundation of the Christian faith that the church is built on that had been taught from the beginning by Jesus himself, and then also by the apostles. They were trying to circumvent that. They were trying to undermine that. They were attacking the character they were, and the nature of God in some of their teachings. They were attacking the work of Jesus and the meaning of what it meant when he died and what it meant when he rose from the dead. Uh, they were attacking the doctrine of grace. Uh, they were really setting aside and deriding God's call for believers to be holy. They, they kind of put that on the, the shelf. Uh, Jude even said that they changed the grace of our, our God into a license for immorality. Um, see, they didn't teach this. They didn't teach, hey, you know what? As believers, God calls us to holiness, but sometimes, you know, we may struggle with certain sins, sexual sins, other sins, whatever it might be, and we need His grace and mercy to help us through this and experience victory. He, they didn't teach that. What they taught was 
sexual sin no longer exists. Because of God's grace, you have been forgiven. And since you've been forgiven, you can do whatever your body wants to do because it's all covered by his grace. A very cheap, very free grace. And if that applies to something as serious as sexual sin, it applies to every other area of life as well. So no doubt, there were people within this church that started hearing this message and thought, you know what? I don't think we have to be truthful all the time. We can just be truthful when it's convenient because our lives are covered by God's grace. So what's the difference? Or you know what? We can have an issue if if Gentiles try to join our church. We can be kind of racist with that or we can be elitist with that. We can be selfish. We can even be dishonest. We can use people for our own pleasure and for our own purposes because, you know what, it's all good. It's all covered by God's grace. It doesn't really matter anymore. Praise God for God's grace. See, the wonderful thing about Christianity is this, is that the gospel teaches us that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, right? Or how many times you've done it. None of that matters. It doesn't matter how many times you've fallen or how ugly your sins are that you've committed. The gospel says that what? We can be forgiven of any and all of that through the work of Christ. We can be washed clean. We can be made right with God. We can be given, what? New life in Jesus Christ, right? That's what the gospel teaches us. Why? Because of our God and because of his gift of mercy and grace to us through Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful message, and we don't ever want to forget that because all of that's true. But unfortunately, within this church, and even today we see it a lot in churches, there are some who hear that wonderful truth that, hey, your sins are forgiven, past, present, future. They're all forgiven. They're all covered by the blood of Jesus. And they twist that doctrine. They twist, twist that truth to mean this. That means the rules don't apply to me anymore as a Christian. <laughs> I'm forgiven. So I can go do whatever I want. Some use it to justify an immoral lifestyle. Some use it to justify greed, gossip, selfishness, laziness. You can take the list of sins and go on and on and on. And they say, because of God's grace, I can do whatever I want. Today we refer to it as what? Cheap grace. Right? There's kind of a, it's it's like sin doesn't exist anymore because it's forgiven. Well, that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's what Jude is explaining in this letter. He says, this is simply just not the case that as believers you will be held account for those sins maybe not eternally not judgmentally but our heavenly father does discipline us he does love us so much that he will discipline us if we don't strive to live holy lives for him we can't just go off and do whatever we want and so he gives them several examples here that he shows them there's consequences for your sin he wants them to understand that he wants them to understand those that thumb their nose at the goodness and the holiness of god and say, well, I'm, I'm forgiven now. I can go live whatever I want. No, you can't. You know, you hear all this stuff about free will, free will, free will. And I always say, you know, you're not, it doesn't really exist in the, the realm of God. Because before you're a sinner, you're a slave to what? Sin. Or before you're a Christian, you're a slave to sin. And after you're a Christian, you're a slave to who? Christ. Okay. So you don't really have the right to do whatever you want. And so he gives these certain illustrations, and he reminds them how God led them out of Egypt. And when they continued to rebel against him, he finally said, you know what? This generation will not enter the promised land. You're still my chosen people, but you're not going to enter the promised land. Matter of fact, you're all going to die in the desert. And the next group of people, the next generation, will inherit the land of milk and honey. Not you, because you've been disobedient. He reminded them, even in this letter, that when the angels rebelled against him and abandoned their positions of authority, whatever that was, there's a lot of different teachings on that, and we'll get into that when we get to that verse. Um, But it says they were cast into darkness. There was consequences for their actions. He reminded them that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, could have been saved, but they completely and kind of unanimously gave themselves over 
to their sexual immorality, their sexual desires, and what happens? We know the cities were destroyed. You know, God didn't just say, oh, it's all covered by grace. So Jude is basically saying here, there is what? There are consequences to behavior. Good and bad behavior, by the way. There are consequences to it. That runs in the face of our, of our, of our societies today. People just don't believe this anymore. I mean, look at the laws they're passing. You can beat up people, you can even murder people, and you can be out in the streets. They'll leave you out of jail. There's no consequences anymore. You can walk across the border even though it's illegal to do that. But no, no, we'll give you a bus, we'll give you a ticket wherever you want to go. We're rewarding bad behavior instead of allowing the consequences to play out. And what does God do? God pours out his mercy on his people. But when his people take the attitude that says, you know what, that means that the rules don't apply to me anymore because I'm under the grace of God. God's my friend now. Uh, God's going to send you a wake-up call. And sometimes he'll use whatever he needs to use in your life to do that. Because you don't want to toy around with that. And so he's telling his readers, basically, watch out for these people who are creeping into the church. Watch out, he calls them deceivers. And they're within the church. And he points out that they're heading for destruction in their own lives. And you know what? You're not going to be far behind if you follow them. If you follow their teaching, if you follow their behavior, you're going to experience the same thing. And so he wants them to to see these two main themes in this letter. First of all, to expose false teachers. He spends an inordinate amount of time discussing false teachers. And he does so in a very direct way. You know, a lot of people say, well, you shouldn't use people's names from the pulpits when you're talking about false teachers. You know, that's just not right. Yes, it is right. We're called to do that. If somebody's a heretic, they need to be called out as a heretic. Just because they're on TV and they have billions of dollars doesn't mean you can't use their name. Um, So we need to expose false teachers. And then he also says, not just expose false teachers, but I want to encourage believers to what? He says it very vividly, to contend for the faith and to finish strong in their Christian walk. There's nothing, nothing more discouraging when you see a believer kind of growing in their faith, and then all of a sudden you meet them a couple years later, and it's like, oh, I don't even go to church anymore. <laughs> it's like, what happened? You know, that's so discouraging. Um, and he doesn't want that to happen. He wants to encourage believers, first of all, to contend for the faith, and then also to finish strong. And so he points these people out, and he calls them various terms. And I put the terms down there just so we can see them, because, you know, they're not really uh, nice terms. (laughs) And you can see the list there. In in verse 4, he calls them ungodly. All right? The word means godless. Uh, And I think this is strange to me. Because he's talking about people who are where? In a church. And he's calling them godless. And yet, a lot of times, when you look around at at some of the churches today, I mean, and some of the things they they stand for and some of the positions they take on even social issues, you scratch your head and say, do these people even read the Bible? What are they doing? And so these people, these godless people, are in the church. And he considers them godly, uh, godless or ungodly. And that the Greek word here used for this word ungodly refers to a person who fails to worship God. A person who fails to worship God. Um, they may have a religious life, but you know what? They don't know what it means to have a devotional life. They don't know what it means to, you know, they're, they're like in Christian by name only by profession only. Uh, They don't live a surrendered life. They don't live a yielded life. They're doing whatever they want to do, but they go to church. And the church is full of people like this. And we have to be careful that, you know, you're not just yielding certain people, you know, any kind of leadership abilities and things like that within a church that have this kind of a lifestyle. Because it's going to take your church right down very quickly. uh, Because they're not on the same level. They're probably not even believers. He calls them ungodly. In verse 8, he uses the word 
uh, dreamers, if you look at verse 8, he says, yet in the, the same, in, in the like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. They defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. So uh, these are people that are very, you could say very, um, they're, not, they're not yielding to truth. They're yielding to their opinion. They're yielding to the dream they had last night. They're, oh, I had this wonderful dream, and this is what I believe. You know, and sometimes you meet people like that. You know, a lot of times people will come up and they'll ask a question. They say, hey, I have a question. You know, my friend said they had this experience, and they start talking about this experience, and they'll they'll start saying something about you know, oh, this person did this, and I and I just go, yeah, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. So it's kind of like, well, you know, it is what it is. But sometimes people have that dreamer kind of theology, the other, other where it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a, they're just kind of up in the clouds all the time. Or in verse 12, he talks about reefs, or some translations say uh, spots. He says in verse 12, he says, these are hidden reefs. It has the idea that they are... Uh, um, you know, rocks that are hidden in the path that you're going to trip over, that are going to cause a problem for you. All right? And you, you can't really see them. Um, he also uses the term waterless clouds or fruitless trees in verse 12. What's that saying? It's basically saying these people are all show. They're no talk. I mean, they're all talk. They're no show. There's no action behind their, their lifestyle. They just get up and they say whatever they want to say, but there's no substance behind them. You see a lot of this in, in what we call the um, Word of Faith movement today. People make these glorious claims of, of all these miraculous things and whatever, you know, God healed them of this, healed them of that, but they're sitting there with glasses on. You know, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And it's, 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 it's really the idea that they have waterless clouds. There's, there's nothing in the clouds. They're just for show. It's almost blasphemous. Or fruitless trees. You have a tree that has no fruit, he calls them. Or he calls them in verse 13, uh, wild waves. In other words, they're just every which way. There's no, there's no sense to what they believe. Or wandering stars, kind of like a shooting star. Boy, it's there and it's gone. You know? and, but, but also in verse 10, look at what he says. He says, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. A lot of times you find people that speak very abusively. One translation says it this way. These men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And sometimes, you know what? There are things in the Bible that we can't comprehend, that we don't understand. Um, but you know what? It doesn't mean that you have to be abusive about it. You don't, you don't have to blaspheme God. I mean, why do you think you have the same kind of mind that God has? I mean, he is far far above our understanding of anything. And so for these kind of people, there's no room for exploring ideas. There's no room for discussing or even debating differences of opinion. You know, it's kind of like all the, you hear about all the tolerance. Everybody wants tolerance, tolerance, tolerance today. But when you mention the truth of the gospel and that there's only one way to heaven through Jesus Christ, well, they're very intolerant of that message. They don't want to hear that, you know. And it's unfortunate, but that's the truth. They don't want to debate it. They don't want to have any difference of opinion. If you don't agree with them, you're wrong, and there's no two ways about it. Um, and they don't even bother really today to mask their, their contempt for certain truths that exist. Another thing he says in verse 12, he calls them shepherds who feed only themselves. Shepherds who feed only themselves. Think about that. I mean, think of the, the, the imagery there. You have a shepherd who has a a flock of, say, 20 sheep. And the sheep are starving, but the shepherd's fat. <laughs> you know, the shepherd's feeding himself continuously with no care for the sheep at all. Uh, it, it points out their self-serving attitude. It's all about them. He also points out in this letter that there are people who are classified as, the words he uses, I think, are grumblers. Uh, there's people that are fault finders. It has the idea that it's kind of a perfectionist. Um, 
for whom nothing is ever good enough. You could never do something that a perfectionist will come up and say, wow, that is incredible, that's really good. No, they'll always come up and they'll say, well, you know what, you should have done this. Uh, I remember my brother, my dad died when I was young, so I didn't know him that well, but my brother told me, you know, he was really good in sports, going home from baseball, he'd have a baseball game and, and if he was the pitcher, he pitched really well and hit a couple home runs. And on the way home, my dad would say, you know what, but you struck out in that. <laughs> it's just like, wow, really? I mean, I did all this, and you're going to point out the one thing that I didn't do right? You know, some people are that way. Um, they're just very perfectionistic people. They can't see good in anything, especially in, in anything other than themselves. And so they're, they're constantly griping. They're constantly complaining. They're constantly criticizing everything. We've all dealt with people like this. We've all met people like this. And these people exist within the church. Worst of all, the, the, I think the absolute worst characterization that Jude gives to these people who crept into this, the, the, the church back in this time was they are men who divide you. They are people who divide you. Well, these are the ones who create divisions among you. You know, we've talked about how the body of Christ is, is one, how our fellowship is to be unified, it, all these things. But these people come in and in very creative ways sometimes, seek ways to divide the body of Christ. In other words, they're not building the church up. What are they doing? They're tearing it apart. And they're pitting one group against another. They're pitting one person against another. And, and I, I can't even think of a church that I've been part of in my many years of ministry where these people have not existed. There's always somebody within a local church who has this kind of mentality. And they sought this, to do the same thing that the people here that Jude warns us against sought to do. Uh, and these people never consider themselves as the enemy of the church. They never say, oh, I'm here to divide you. I'm here to ruin your church. No. What do they do? They come in and they say, oh, I want to serve. I want to do this. I want to do that. As a matter of fact, I have a whole agenda here. Why don't we do it this way? And, and they take you down this road, if you allow them to, and pretty soon you're going, how do we get here? Uh, as a matter of fact, they don't consider themselves enemies of the church. They consider themselves heroes of the church because they're here to save the church from itself. Because the church isn't doing, the way, doing things the way they think they should be done, so now they're here to tell us how to do them. They consider some, themselves the brightest, the best, the most intelligent, the most enlightened, the most perceptive, the one with the best ideas. And it doesn't matter if you've been in the church 30 years. It's irrelevant because they're here, and now they have the answer to everything. And they wonder why the leadership in any church won't put them in charge quickly, <laughs> okay? It doesn't work that way. And sometimes, if they're allowed to, they cause division by trying to live above the rules, by encouraging others to do the same. Sometimes they cause divisions by ridiculing everyone who doesn't think like they think. Sometimes they cause division by trying to jockey for power, position, and influence. And if the leadership of the church isn't on to them, they actually put them in positions of leadership. And then they wonder why their, their church is messed up in a year or so. Many churches have to deal with these kind of people. So Jude tells us, he tells them, to be aware of this. Just be aware of this. And even though he goes into great detail about the kind of problems that these kind of people can cause, uh, the purpose of this letter is not, is not to get you to point your finger at other people in the church. That's not the, the purpose here. We don't want to leave here going, oh, who's Steve talking about? We've got to get these people. No, that's not the purpose. That was not his purpose. The purpose of this letter is to, what, expose false teachers and to encourage believers to contend for the faith and finish strong. And that has to happen in your own personal life first and foremost. You can't be worried about your neighbor or your spouse's spiritual life if your own spiritual life is a wreck. And so he wants them to understand that. 
So those are some of the themes and some of the things that he causes, calls them. But what's, let's look at the purpose that he had in writing, because he, he tells us that. We read verse 3. Beloved, he starts out, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Um, he starts off here and he tells us his purpose, his concern was our common salvation. And he had a pastoral concern. He wasn't coming across as some high and mighty person, you know, speaking down to everybody. No, he had a very loving concern. As a matter of fact, he starts off, beloved, that's the word, agape. He, he, he has a very uh, uh, heartfelt concern for the people he's writing to even those who are the deceivers in the church. He's still appealing to them out of love. And so he displays this sincere concern for his readers. And you know what? This is very common in the New Testament. You can look at almost all the epistles. You see this to some degree. Some of them, Romans 1.7, Paul wrote, to those in Rome who are loved by God. All right? He emphasizes that. 1 Corinthians 4.14, Paul writes, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, we saw this on Sunday, but to admonish you as what? My beloved children. Right? He's appealing to them out of his heart because he's concerned for them. Or in Ephesians 5.1, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. You can almost go through all of Paul's writings, James, 1 Peter, 1 John. They all mention this word of this idea of love and beloved. And it's not this uh, shallow kind of love uh, sentimental kind of love. He's not talking about that. He's talking about a heartfelt expression of affection for God's people. He really wants them to understand that he cares for them. He loves them. And it's really embodied in this concern born out of this deeply held conviction for the importance of God's truth. That's, that's where his, his heart is. And so he has this pastoral concern, but he is also very, it's a very pressing concern, you can say. Look at what he says. He says, beloved, although I was very eager, I, I, I'm very eager to write to you. I can't wait to write to you. It, it means hastening and speed. He, he tried to make an effort to write regarding the common salvation. But then he says, you know what, but the Spirit kind of took me in a different direction. And I can't, I'm very eager to write this to you. His initial notion was to speak positively to them. But something happened. The, the very salvation that he wanted to talk about was under assault by these apostates, by these false leaders, by these false teachers. And so he had to, he had to change, change the subject matter. That happens sometimes. Sometimes when you're writing a letter, you're writing an email, whatever, it's like, boy, you know, God just impresses on you, you know what, say this or say that or whatever, and it's not some weird spiritual thing, it's just the Holy Spirit working through his word and maybe through other believers to, to kind of lead you and guide you. Um, it's kind of like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.16. He wrote this to the Corinthians. He says, for, for necessity is laid upon me, Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That's the kind of eagerness, that's the kind of conviction that Jude felt. Paul said, man, if I don't preach the gospel, man, I'm in trouble. I have to do it. And Jude felt it necessary. That means it's, it's basically, he had a heavy burden. He had a mandate to write what he wrote to them. He wasn't just sitting down and saying, oh, I think I'll go in this direction now. No, the spirit was moving him, was working in his heart. And that word necessary means literally compress. It was kind of a, a very um, intense uh, passion that he had for this. And I think he recognized that he was a watchman for the truth. We all should be watchmen for the truth. Just like Ezekiel speaks of the watchman on the wall, right? Um, you can't just simply watch error go on and not say anything about it. And just sit there in silence. Um, I've been in a lot of meetings where, you know, there's, there's people who brought things up, even other pastors in, in discussion and stuff, and you kind of got to dig your heels in and go, well, no, the Bible doesn't teach that. <laughs> what you're saying is wrong. And everybody else looks at you like, well, you just ruined the party. Why don't you leave? <laughs> you know, which is fine. I mean, you wonder why you're there anyway sometimes. But um, 
you know, if you're not careful, if you don't guard the truth, it's very easy to get off that path. And, you know, there's all of the, uh, a lot of the, the, the cult leaders, okay, started off with some semblance of truth in their teaching, you know, and, and then they went down this weird path and nobody called them on it. Nobody said, hey, stop. What you're saying is wrong. There was no Bereans in their group. You know, and that has to happen, especially in a Bible-believing church. I don't care who's teaching, whether it's the pastor, an elder, guest speaker, whatever. If they get up there and they say something that's wrong, that's not in the Bible, it doesn't mean you call them out and embarrass them, but you go up to them and say, hey, you know what, you said this. Could you show me in the Bible where it says that? And maybe they back off and say, well, that's my opinion. Okay, fine, because you didn't teach it that way. You kind of taught it like, you know, and it's fine. Sometimes you have to have opinions on certain things, but you should make that clear, Okay. But you don't teach it as gospel truth if you don't have chapter and verse. And so his passion was really for sound doctrine. His passion was for the truth. And it was regarding especially the message of Christ, the gospel. Sometimes people, you know, they want to they dumb the gospel down, and they also want to make excuses for those people that don't teach the gospel correctly. And usually they'll do this, you know, well, you know, somebody like Joe Olstein, you know, I like to listen to him. He's encouraging. And, you know, he does mention uh, some form of Jesus. And don't you think God could use that to save somebody? Well, yeah, he could. I mean, you know, he could use a donkey if he wants to. That doesn't make an excuse for that to be okay. We, we don't have to go down that road. And, and Jude had such a heavy heart about teaching the truth. Um, he really wanted, wanted these people to know that he doesn't want them slipping off into error. And there's people within their, their midst who are teaching them error. Uh, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11.28. He says, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What was that anxiety concerning? I think it was the concerning of the truthfulness of the gospel, that it wouldn't go off track. Paul was concerned. And if there's anything that we should be praying for today is the Bible-believing church today, the church that truly is saved, that they would make it clear that, hey, they're not going to play footsie with people that don't teach the truth. And so he, he addresses his readers here, and he, he wants to talk about their common salvation, but he wanted them to understand that they would not be able to share a common salvation if they lost the gospel. All right? And that's what's happened today. The gospel is, is, is really lost in so many churches. They, they couldn't define the gospel if, if you asked them to. Okay? I mean, their idea of the gospel is, well, Jesus loves you. Well, yeah, that's a truth. Jesus does love us. But that's not the gospel. And so Jude had this deep love for his leaders. He was dedicated to their spiritual well-being, and he wanted that to be very clear. And according to his the way he addresses them, Paul had a similar concern in his own heart for even the elders in Ephesus. He, he talks about them in, in Acts 20, 31, and he says this, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, we talked about this Sunday as well, I did not cease to admonish you, each one with tears. That's a guy who really is patient and a guy who's really loving and really concerned about these elders. I mean, think about it. Day and night for a period of three years? As I said Sunday, I think I'd maybe go maybe a week. And then I'd be like, I'm done. <laughs> you know? I'm not going to pray for that. Three years? Day and night? To the point of tears? I mean, my patience would run out. Um, but that's what Paul, that's the passion that he had in his heart. And, and Jude, I think, shares that. And so we see the purpose of his writing, his original concern, but you also look here at his, his present challenge. What, what's the problem? What's going on here, Jude? Well, he has to appeal to them. He has to exhort them. He has to encourage them. You could even say, it's not the same word. Here, it's, appeal is parakaleo, which means similar to come alongside, to exhort, to, to help out. Um, and he's appealing them to contend for the faith. So he wants them to know that this doesn't just happen automatically. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that appealing for the, and contending for the faith is something that just kind of just comes out while you sleep. No, 
is something you have to work at. And he, he calls it really a simple responsibility here. And he uses this word. Some translations say contend earnestly. The ESV just says contend for the faith. But it, it's, 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 it's concerning an athletic struggle. It's somebody who is in the, the depths of battle, a physical battle. They're really pushing it to the limit. And it says contend. It, 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 it's translated... The word is translated, and it really stresses the need to defend the truth, not just once, okay, but continually, and with amped up vigor each time. And what's happened today, unfortunately, in our modern day churches is they've grown weary of doing this. It's a lot easier just to kind of go get along with everybody, right? I mean, you know, if people want to believe this, well, that's fine. You know, I'm sure God loves them too. Let's just, you know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya. But you know what? You have Christian churches today that are holding hands with the Mormon, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Roman Catholics, which all teach false doctrine according to the Bible. It doesn't mean they're horrible people. They're just misinformed. But they're saying, oh, no, we're all you know, under the, the guise of Christian. And you see this a lot. You, you probably saw Joe Olstein with Larry King years ago. And Larry King was pressing him. Well, isn't, you, you don't believe what the Mormons believe. Well, Larry, you know, we're, we're all under the same plan. You know, he actually had to write a, a, a letter of apology to his own church because of his statements. Because he was unwilling to stand up for the truth. And, you know, that doesn't go well. And so here he's talking about this responsibility. And it has the idea that you are going to continually and vigorously contend earnestly. You're going to fight for it. You're not just going to say, well, people can believe whatever they want. We get our English word agonize uh, from the Greek word. And so from Jude's day all the way till now, from all the way back then, even to today, true believers are always to battle for the purity of the salvation of the gospel. It's not just going to be preserved on its own. And when we don't say something, when we don't speak up, and, and this is throughout the New Testament. If you turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, this is what Paul told Timothy as a young pastor. He said, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. About what? Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. Okay, he's, he's telling Timothy, man, you, you're, you're going to be in warfare concerning the truth of, of the word of God. Or in 1 Timothy 6, 12, Paul says, fight the good faith, the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But he uses the word fight, fight for the faith. That's what we're called to do. Or 2 Timothy, Paul continues to write to him in, in chapter 4, verse 7. And he says, you know what? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. We want to be able to say that at the end of our earthly life. You know, we don't want to go into heaven kind of like, well, you know, I guess I didn't do all that I could. You know, but it's a fight. It's a struggle for every one of us. Um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you, or whether I'm absent. In other words, it shouldn't make any difference. You know, it's not like children in the home, oh, mom and dad are coming home, hurry up, clean everything up. You know, no, it should already be clean, right? I mean, th this is the idea. And, and so many times in our Christian lives, we think, well, we'll just act a certain way because we're in church, right? But when we're out there, we're going to do all kinds of things that we would never do in church, so Paul says, whether I come to you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are, listen to what he says, standing firm. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is what the church is called to do. And verse 28 says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. I, I mean, I can't count... I don't know when I have fingers, I don't have enough toes to count how many times Christians have said, well, you know, I just, at work, I can't, I, you know, you don't understand. 
you know, well, yeah, I do understand. I mean, I've had jobs. I've worked out there in the world, too, and I understand what it's like. It's not always easy. I mean, you don't want to be a jerk about your faith, but at the same time, it's imperative that you share your faith. It's not an option. Well, what if they fire me? Well, if you do it in the wrong way, they probably will fire you. But if you ask God for wisdom and you do it in the right way, maybe someone would get saved. Then they can fire you. Then it'd be worth it. You know, I mean, seriously. I mean, we, we get so caught up with what other people think. And we're so concerned about pleasing them and, and, and doing everything that they tell us to do, even if it goes against what God is telling us to do. That's very dangerous when you get to that point in life. You have to be careful of that. And so he says, hey, you know what? This is a simple responsibility. Contend, struggle, um, agonize for the faith. It's not going to happen automatically. It's going to take some responsibility on your part. It's going to take some uh, just energy to do this. And what's the reason or reasons? There's three of them here that I listed. First of all, there's a body of truth to believed in, to be believed in. There's a body of truth that we believe. The faith, he says. He doesn't say the faiths. He doesn't say you can believe whatever you want. No. He says, you know what? I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That can only be one thing. It's not talking about world religions. It's not talking about different churches. It's talking about faith. Faith in who? Faith in Christ. He's talking about the gospel. In referring to the faith, Jude is not speaking of some weird religious doctrine. He's not talking about a bunch of doctrines that somebody came up with and, oh, believe this. No. Rather, the faith constitutes the Christian faith, the faith of the gospel, God's objective truth, everything that's pertaining to our common salvation, as he calls it, relates to this. So there's a, a body of truth to be believed, the faith. It's what Luke wrote about in Acts 2.42 when he said this, the early believers were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They weren't out here listening to other teachers. They weren't over here doing this or doing No, they were devoting themselves, which means they made it a priority. They took things, time away from other things to make this a priority. They were continually doing this. They didn't do it on Sunday afternoon and then say, okay, well, I'm done for the week. <laughs> Check the box, went to church. No, this was something they did continually, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, first, first Corinthians 15, Paul reminds them in verses 1 to 4, he says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. Why do you think he had to remind them? Because they forgot. Sometimes we forget. We forget very elementary things about the gospel. He says... The gospel that I preached to you, which you received, they just didn't hear it, they received it, in which you stand, okay, they were saved, and by which you are being saved, he says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And then he says this, unless you believed in vain, <laughs> maybe it wasn't real. So, so he says here, look, I preached this to you, you, you accepted it, you're saved, you're being saved, you're being sanctified, you received it, you're standing in it, but unless you believed in vain, verse 3, for I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. Paul didn't change anything. He, he, he gave them the same message that God gave him. That Christ died for our sins, accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Okay? When, you, when you believe that message and you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ because you understand that he had to be the Son of God. He had to be the sacrifice that was offered because he was buried and now he was living. He was raised on the third day. That proves his deity. That proves that his message was true, that he died for our sins. That's the gospel. Or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. See, today we have this mentality that, you know, we have to find new truth. 
You know, I mean, the Bible's got some truth, but it's that old stuff. You know, we want to find something new. So when someone comes along and says, yeah, you know, the other day I was just deep in prayer and all of a sudden God just spoke to my heart and here's the message he gave me. Well, I mean, we're just attracted to that kind of stuff because we think, wow, this is something new. Sometimes people write books on things that God showed them, brand new truths. Half of them aren't biblical, but that doesn't matter because people want new truth. And that's, that's what tickles their ears. They don't want the same old gospel religion kind of stuff. Give me something fresh. Give me something new. And that's where people tend to want to go. And Paul even admonished Timothy to protect the faith. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, he said, follow the pattern of sound words, listen, that you have heard from me. These are sound words. In other words, they make sense. In the faith and love that are in Christ. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, he says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is something God has entrusted to us, the message of the gospel. And in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verse 20, he says this, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid, listen, the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This is what false teachers do. Well, I got a new word of knowledge. How many times have you heard that on the TV programs, right? It says they're, they're irrelevant irre babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Verse 21 says, For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. That's a kind way of saying they went off the deep end. Okay, they're in the ditch. And so you have to really believe in your heart of hearts that God's truth is paramount. It is the most important thing in our lives. We shouldn't allow it to be manipulated. We shouldn't allow it to be distorted. We shouldn't be allow, allow it to be mixed with error. Because when we do those things, that's inviting. That's saying, God, bring your wrath upon me. We don't want that. And that's what Paul told the Galatians in, in chapter 1, verse 9. He said, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the, what you received, he is to be accursed. That's very strong language. Anathema. No more. <laughs> and the Apostle John told his readers in 2 John, verses 9 and 11, he says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of of Christ does not have God. Wow. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Verse 10, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching of the gospel, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I found myself a couple times entertaining Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses on my porch and you're trying to be nice to them or whatever. And I remember a couple times as they're walking away, we had a good discussion. They're walking, oh, hey, well, God bless you. And my wife, I said, what are you doing? <laughs> I thought, you know what, you're right. <laughs> I just kind of said it automatically, right? Because we're talking about spiritual things. That's, 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 that's very serious. And so there's one body of truth to be believed in, the faith. But there's also a, a finality. There's a completion to this, this faith. It doesn't continue, right? I mean, we aren't, we aren't getting new truth from God every week. Uh, you know, I'm not home shaving Sunday morning asking God, hey, give me some new truth for the, the, the sermon today. No. We have all the truth we can handle right here in his word. It's complete. It's final. So when someone comes to you and says, I had a dream. Great. Chapter verse. Show me. I mean, that, that should be our answer. Because he says right here, it was delivered what? Once for all. It was delivered. Once for all. Hapax in the, in the original, that word in it, and it means this. Something that is accomplished or completed one time. With lasting results. And listen to this. And no need of repetition. You don't need to add a book to the end of the Bible. 
the book of Stephanus. You know, no, you don't need to do that. We have the word of God in its completion. Because we believe that through the Holy Spirit, God revealed the Christian faith to the apostles and their associates in the first century. And it was established. It's a done deal. Their New Testament writings, in conjunction with the Old Testament scriptures, make up the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. And as believers, all believers, that's what we need for life. That's what we need for godliness. It tells us that it's completely sufficient. We don't need to have to go outside the covers of this book to get other information. The authors of the New Testament did not discover the truths of the Christian faith through some mystical religious experience. That's not how it happened. The Bible tells us how it happened. God, with finality and certainty, it tells us that he delivered his complete body of revelation in the scriptures. And that's what we use today. That's why we are Grace Bible Church. That's why we build a foundation upon the word of God because there's nothing else to build a foundation on. Any system that claims new revelation or new doctrine, I really honestly believe has to be disregarded as false. And you just have to be that bold today because God's word is either all sufficient or it's not sufficient at all. Either it has all that believers need or doesn't have anything to offer us. And that's what we're to contend for, for the faith. And we're to oppose any apostasy within the church. And we should do so with vigor. So there's a finality, there's a completion to this, this body of truth that we're called to believe in. And then thirdly, there's a stewardship required by us. Notice what he says. It's delivered to who? Who does it say? Once, all, once for all delivered to the, what's the word? Saints, right? The saints. That's you. That's me. That's those, anybody who's put their faith, their trust in Christ Jesus. When we do that, we are, we enter into sainthood. I mean, I grew up in a church where basically, you know, you worshiped all kinds of saints and then, you know, they could make saints on a whim, you know, the Pope could, oh, declare this person to be a saint now or whatever. That's not, not the idea here. All those who put their faith or trust in Christ are considered saints. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 2. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Us, he's talking about believers. We are stewards. We are servants of Christ and we are stewards of his word. What we do with this book matters. In verse 2, he says, moreover, it is required of students that they be found what? Faithful. Faithful. Think about it. We probably all have two or three, maybe ten Bibles on our bookshelves. There's, there's no, I, I, I doubt very much if there's anyone here, if there is, come and talk to me afterwards. I'll give you a Bible that you don't have a copy of God's Word. Okay? And yet, we just take it for granted. We forget people died. They've spilt their blood so that we could hold in our own language the Word of God. 2 Timothy, Paul says in verse 12, chapter 1, This is why I suffer as I do. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You know, sometimes I, I, I wonder if we actually believe that, if we believe that God is able to guard what he has entrusted to us. Um, because we, we do it kind of too nonchalantly today. We... we we don't stand up for the truth the way we, we should. I, I believe, in my own personal opinion, we should be more vocal. And you know what? If that gets you dislikes or whatever on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, well, so what? But I think that it's important to stand up for the truth today. If we don't, who will? So that's, we'll pick up with verse 4 next week. But it's, it's, it's very important that we stand up for, for God's word. Let's pray, and then we'll have some fellowship together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us this letter uh, of Jude, and thank you for his passion, his concern for those who have crept into the church and spread false doctrine and immoral lifestyle and immoral living. And, and Lord, unfortunately, some churches just go along with the flow, and they allow it to happen. And Lord, we pray that you would open up their eyes 
that you would convict their hearts. We pray for these deceivers even and pray for their salvation. We pray that they would be convicted of their sins and turn to Christ. Lord, we pray if there's any here tonight who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that tonight might be the night that they cry out to a holy God, Lord, I am unworthy. I I have sin in my life, but I know that I, I can't do anything about it. I've tried. I've tried to carry this burden of sin around, and, and Lord, it's wearing me out. Uh, Father, I just want to give it to you. I, I, I want to trust your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for my sin because he already did that on Calvary. And I want to put my faith and trust in Christ tonight. If that's on your heart, you, Lord, you cry out. You can cry out to the Lord tonight, and Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. He'll answer that prayer, and he'll give you the Holy Spirit to give you the understanding of God's Word. And you'll begin to live a life that, that only He can live through you. But he'll, he'll take that burden of sin away. And Father, we pray that you would just lead us tonight and take us safely home from these places. And Lord, I pray for my daughter and granddaughters as they head out tomorrow morning early. I know it's been snowing up in Tahoe. I just pray for clear roads for them. Pray that they would have a safe trip back to Idaho. And, um, and Lord, pray that you would give us a, a good night's rest tonight as well and father just bless our fellowship now and father we thank you and we praise you in jesus precious name amen